from Moby.co. This is the Flagship Pod, a weekly podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you a short week as the market is reacting to a lot of news right now. The EV market is absolutely bustling. The wider economy is worried about more Fed rate hikes. And once again, we're back to the mixed bag section of this potential recovery. So a lot of things to get into as we discuss both EVs, the travel economy, as well as the sort of like new upswell that we're seeing in social media as Threads kind of literally eats Elon Musk's lunch live in front of us as they top 70 million new users in their app right now. To help me unpack all of that, as always, I am joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, what's good? How's your fourth week going? Good. Good. I cannot complain. Um, everything is uh, <laughs> is relatively good so far. Um, nice having a little bit of a quiet week, of course, as uh, as people resume back to office or return, rather. We have another social media channel now that we have to uh, post on via thread. So if you don't follow us there, definitely check us out. We'll be doing even more content, but uh, everything is good. I cannot complain. And just to give you an, like a, a sort of like inside baseball metric here, audience, we're obviously super bullish on threads, mostly because like it helps our meta price target, but tangentially because we are now completely eclipsing our number of Twitter followers on threads since we are, you know, we're an Instagram first kind of team. Like we figured out the Instagram algorithm pretty early, blew up on Instagram, never quite figured out Twitter. So we're just glad to be able to transfer our success over there. So find us, we're moby.invest over at threads. And you can also find us, uh, our tangential analysts as well as we sort of expand and how we're posting. Anyway, Justin, we'll get into that a little bit later, but let's talk about sort of the major news. Um, the market is going to head to a down week on this uh, trading session, right? Um, it was pretty down yesterday on ADP news, and now it has flattened out because non-farm payrolls came back in and sort of calmed the market. So let me kind of take you through that real fast, Justin. So the main thing is, is that private payrolls yesterday doubled expectations, adding almost half a million new jobs in the U.S. economy when, you know, only around 200K were expected. Non-farm payrolls actually declined for the first time in 14 months, which is, you know, a much more bullish sign. So we're getting a lot of mixed singles from the labor market, and the labor market is largely what the Fed is looking at trying to control as they think about raising rates. So Jerome Powell's been talking about maybe two interest rate in increases this year. Are we aiming for three now, now that we see the labor market being too high, or is this just the overall economy kind of overreacting to jobs? Yeah, he'll probably need some more data points for him to push in either direction. Uh, to your point, when economic news came out earlier this week, markets sold out, and now the jobs data is telling a little bit different of a story. Um, so with payrolls rising by 209,000 in June, uh, which was ultimately less than expected as jobs growth slows, you know, I think it puts them probably relatively on the exact track they've been in terms of having these conflicting data points. Ultimately, inflation, energy prices, a lot of things that's been leading the economy is something that also will be an, a, a massive indicator for them going forward. So as much as these are important and do play a decision, uh, a part of their decision, you know, I think them saying they're going to raise rates another two times isn't really going to be impacted by the news that comes out. It'd probably be, you know, more the same as what we're anticipating. 
And something really important to keep in mind too, audience, is that while the market overreacted to actual jobs numbers, the real thing that drives inflation is wage growth, right? So one thing we saw post-COVID is we saw in 2021 people like actually start getting back to work after the economy literally shut down. So wage growth was absolutely insane. Like in the 12 in November 2021, 13.7% wage growth, which was just completely outsized compared to inflation. Now, right, um, the overall all private workers is at 4.4%, which is right in line with our actual inflation and the thing kind of like pushing that upward a lot is the fact that leisure and hospitality workers are sitting at a comfortable 5.6 percent growth in wages year over year right so what we're seeing is a huge decline in wage growth which is the actual thing that would drive inflation the more people get paid the more they can spend the less money is valuable yada 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 you, we've been talking about inflation for two and a half years now you don't need me to get into the specifics right so i think it's a much more sort of bullish sign than the market initially anticipated because that wage growth is actually what's really important and it's simply the folks at sort of the, the leisure and hospitality side of the equation having a lot more options after basically those jobs were so drastically underpaid pre-pandemic and now folks who own leisure and hospitality businesses have to actual have to offer actual wages to offset what is exactly happening at these at these workspaces that are kind of difficult to work at you know if you deal with customers yada 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 so what you're seeing is that growing as sort of we get back to the leisure and hospitality side of the economy whereas everything else kind of sticking in line with inflation so ultimately a good sign bidenomics is the most wild thing in the world the fact that we are not seeing rising unemployment and inflation getting under control totally bonkers dude um so when we think about that justin uh obviously we're looking at more um rate increases, but is there anything kind of like dangerous hiding in here? Like, does this kind of lead to uh, a rise in inflation or is it simply like, can we, can the economy actually handle both low unemployment and sort of like high interest rates? Is that a thing that we're allowed to do? Or is there sort of like any unseen issues with that that can kind of lead to a snap and the recession that everybody's been worried about since 2021? So I think the, something important to note is that for a lot of newer investors or just people who you know, haven't even been paying attention in the last year or two. You know, you hear us talk a lot about inflation and it is the key theme. And you might think, you know, like this has been a problem forever. This is something that's been going on. But if you really look back, inflation hasn't been an issue for really much of the last decade or two. And that's been with the Fed printing a ton of money. So if you go back to the, you know, 2015 to 2020 in that time period, the Fed has been lowering rates now for, at that point, almost a decade. They're pumping more money into the economy. And inflation really like wasn't an issue. So the Fed kept pumping and pumping and pumping. And then COVID really and everything that happened post-COVID was really the straw that broke the camel's back. So I think the, the main point I'm getting at here is that while inflation is a massive issue now, and you know I'm obviously, we're all hopeful it won't be an issue soon, it is something historically the U.S. have actually had a pretty good handle on, even in the face of, you know, printing an excess amount of capital and lowering rates. That artificial environment can persist for a while until we get periods right now of relatively high inflation that weren't even necessarily due to such an increased, you know, supply of capital. And a large portion of the reason it kicked off was really largely due just to supply chain crises um, and just crunches we've seen across the world that paired with an increase in demand and you just saw prices shoot up for you know tons of raw materials and energy overnight and it's something we're still working through today so i just want to make that point that you know inflation has been the name of the game for the last year or two 
But historically, the U.S. has done a really good job of keeping it honestly under that two two percent level, even though it feels you know crazy to say that now. Um, so yeah, just getting on a little bit of a <laughs> a tangent there. Do you mind uh, just re uh, reiterating that last part of your question? And that's kind of like I just want to kind of like jump off on that as well because I think it's really important. I'll get back to my question in a second because that's the thing we really do have to keep in mind. You essentially answered the question because it's. This conversation has gotten so muddied, unfortunately, by politics, right? Uh, when we look at what happened in 2020, like it was supply side inflation. The supply chains completely broke down. It became uh, having crude oil was actually more expensive than being able to sell it. Like we like basically needed to get rid of as much crude oil as possible. It was totally insane. And things just kind of broke down from there post March 2020. And that caught. What we had from around 2011 to 2020 was the most well-oiled economic worldwide engine in history, despite how insanely complex it was. And the minute the logistics broke down, it's taken years to sort of get back to baseline there. And what we're seeing with this inflationary situation is simply the complete collapse of energy supply chains, followed by all of the downstream effects of, well, energy is expensive, so this is going to be expensive, so that is going to be expensive, so on and so forth. So we're currently at the C tier of that, and that's what's really causing inflation to go down. People will say, no, inflation went up because we printed so much money and gave it to basically everyone. Everyone got like, what, 6000 thousand dollars total from the government from March 2020 until about uh, the middle of 2021 with all of sort of like the pandemic benefits, all the PPP loans, so to speak. But that really didn't have as big of an effect, it seems, as the supply side issues, which is why the Fed's interest rates raising didn't really start having an effect until literally last year. So that's what we're really thinking about here as we find this. So it's a wonder of us getting back to that sort of like 2011 situation where we can get back to lower interest rates, but still also doing a lot of like qualitative easing, getting more money back into the system without causing inflation to go up. But just in the actual question really was, as we keep watching this, as since the Fed says that em employment is the most important thing, wages are the most important thing, really, when we're thinking about sort of killing demand, even though demand wasn't the, the biggest issue, can we kind of maintain this where we're never going to see unemployment go north of 5% and we're going to still see wage growth in line with inflation? Can we kind of thread the needle here and still achieve the Fed soft landing? Or are there any kind of hidden bombs in a situation where uh, inflation keeps getting more and more under control without unemployment being affected at all? Yeah, and that's a it's a really good question because if you look at, again, we're looking at inflation, we're talking about that historically, the Fed has done a pretty good job at keeping inflation down, even in the face of a ton of printing um, and lower rates. Well, the Fed has also done a decent job at keeping the unemployment rate down historically. Um, but having said that, you know, it's not, it's not like completely out of the question that it jumps up all of a sudden. You know, we've talked about this before, but black swan events really change things. You look back to 2007, 2008, the real estate market was flying in the U.S. People were buying second, third, fourth homes. Rates were super low. Every company was doing amazing. And then literally in the blink of an eye, you know, these a lot of these mortgage-backed securities crash. Lehman goes under. And all of a sudden, we enter a massive global recession, like seemingly overnight. And, you know, no one really saw that coming outside of Michael Burry and uh, a handful of other people. And it's the same thing now. You know, when you increase rates, things break. That's just, it's as simple as that. So we saw Silicon Valley Bank, the run on the bank there. We've seen runs on smaller regional banks, you know, things that no one was forecasting a year, two years ago. 
And things like that can continue to persist in areas that are not being looked at. And so that obviously has a massive effect on unemployment. And so with the Fed keeping rates this high, you know, the thinking was that things would cool off, but they ultimately didn't cool off, you know. And so how long can they sustain a period of increased, um, like really increased, uh, not volatility, but just increased pressure? It's a question that really no one's going to have the answer to. And if they did, the Fed would obviously be a lot better at their job and wouldn't be second guessing a lot of their moves. So it's kind of like, it's a little bit of a guess and check scenario where the Fed raises rates, pauses, sees how things are going, raises again. Did they break anything? No, keep going, keep going, keep going. And if they raise once, twice, you know, maybe they avoid that disaster. But if they have to raise three, four more times to get inflation under control, well, maybe at current interest rate levels, things are somewhat sustainable. But when you double, triple, you add in some sort of like boon in the commercial real estate business. Well, then all of a sudden you get a massive scenario where unemployment could double, triple overnight if these, you know, these like reverberations really start going throughout the economy. So it's a long-winded way of saying unemployment's down now. It looks like inflation's getting under control. But if the Fed raises rates once, twice, three times more, inflation still isn't back to their 2% target. I mean, in the blink of an eye, anything's possible, which again is the reason that we've been cautiously optimistic. We've been putting money into market. We like a bunch of investments. But again, we need to know that there are still inherent risks waiting around the corner with valuations sitting where they are right now. And audience, once again, I harp on this a lot, but I think it's really important to continuously like give you this sort of insight as we think about, you know, being cautiously optimistic as, you know, a lot of our investments from 2023 almost become manic in terms of um, their upside. Like we're desperately trying to keep up with all our price targets now because it seems we were a little bit too conservative at the beginning of the year. More on that later. And you keep hearing people being worried about a recession. You keep seeing the market a little bit overreact to labor news. And it's like at some point, are we going to start are we going to start like thinking okay there's actually no recession around the corner and i just want you to understand if you can think about one thing in terms of air quotes black swan events there's a single question we are trying to answer across this entire centuries long experiment in neoliberal capitalism and it's simply how much debt can this economy handle the no one knows the answer to that question like we're still in a new economic system and we're still refining how we do this whole global economy thing. And the thing we are watching for those potential black swan events are A, the commercial real estate market, but maybe, you know, things can change hands up top and it's not really that big of a deal as people sort of lose value on these commercial real estate investments. And two is the consumer credit situation. Like how much credit card debt can the average American consumer take on without breaking the whole thing? Nobody genuinely knows the answers to these questions. Maybe people just go into a little bit more debt and gradually pay it off and just can't afford a bigger house down the line. Or people like, you know, shift to more of a renter style economy. We genuinely don't know. And that's why you see that caution, because there is no way forward in terms of understanding at what point is the amount of debt that we as a sort of nation are in will break us. There's no way of saying precisely when that'll happen. There's no scientific definition there. This is still a very new thing that we're doing in terms of like the global scale of things. Like 200 years from now, they'll be able to say, okay, this is the moment where it got to be too much debt, but you need, again, centuries of data to understand what's going on there. So that's the main thing I want to point out. Like we just don't know about debt and how much we can handle it. It seems like we're handling it pretty well and we have been handling debt as it just has been increasing across the whole 20th century. Debt has just absolutely soared across our economy and has become kind of a tool 
for how we make things work here. But, you know, we'll get into more of that later. Let's talk about sort of specific news as well, Justin, because it was a shorter week. We're still watching various stocks. And for whatever reason, all of our EV uh companies decided to hit their price targets again this week. Tesla uh, kind of set the market up for an explosion by just absolutely smashing through their delivery goals. And then Rivian did the exact same thing. And also Rivian is expanding to Europe and just getting all sorts of hits. Like we have been down on Rivian all year until this exact moment. Justin, what's going on in the EV market? Why did they wait until literally July 4th to start popping off this year, dude? It's obviously going into the summer months a little bit unexpectedly. Um, you know, names are running up pretty sharply heading into the the third quarter, which is a huge reversal from the second quarter, obviously. Not for all names, but for a lot of names. Tesla is just flying off of the charts. Um, so there, there's a few things that you know we're looking at. We're obviously looking at just global auto sales, globally, how they're picking up, how they're tracking as part of deliveries. Um, and right now we're seeing a few different things. So we're seeing like a stronger than expected kind of price mix. And we're seeing a pretty resilient auto consumer at the end of the day. And ultimately, that's kind of beating and raising then expectations and conditions for the automa- market, for the automakers here in the U.S. Um, and Ford, GM, a lot of these other people are starting to print, you know, pretty good numbers. Again, better than a lot of people would have thought. And now it's starting to cause a rally again. And, you know, EV is such a, a you know, a pull and, and push state in terms of one day it's hot, one day it's not. But. Again, diving into more, you know, Tesla had record deliveries. And again, the consumer has been a lot more reliant and a lot more, you know, relentless than a lot of people thought. So consumers ultimately want alternatives and they want differentiating EVs. And that's why we're seeing Ford GM and others do really well. But at the end of the day, Tesla specifically, I mean, it's just a superior value for your money in terms of where the, they're pricing their base level and the kind of car you're getting in return. And that's why they've continuously had this such dominant position in the EV market in terms of their overall market share. You know, a lot of people thought Tesla would need to ultimately give EV market share to other, you know, legacy OEMs or newer entrants. But what instead happens was that it's really going, we've seen this really slow introduction of new EVs, both from, you know, Ford, from other people like that, as well as Rivian. You know, they're only putting out a few different cars and Tesla has continued to be able to take more market share and roll out a better product. And it just provided this opportunity for Tesla to achieve this, what we'll call higher for longer market share versus what expectations were. Um, and so for us, we're really continuing to believe in the overall EV space uh, as penetration. You know, maybe it's a little bit lower than we originally anticipated, but clearly this is something that's not going away, especially with the supercharger network that Tesla is doing now. And again, this vertical integration is a, is a huge piece of it. So at the end of the day, Maybe the EV pie is a little bit smaller five years from now than we thought it'd be, but we see a larger slice continuing to go to Tesla. And again, just some numbers off uh, at the high level that's backing up that is they delivered 466,000 vehicles while producing 479,000 in the quarter. Um, and sell-side estimates was that it would be 446. Um, so again, way higher than the upside there. So they beat consensus by more than 4%. They built 4,000 units of inventory that was worth around $700 million. And that's about two days of supply growth in the quarter, which is pretty strong for us. Um, And then basically, this is just helping ease fears of a demand slowdown uh, and showing that the price cuts of Tesla really did work. You know, it it, it made a big difference when it scared a lot of people away. So they've just continued to, to show how much better executors they are than everyone else. 
And that's the most important thing you have to keep in mind, audience. And I really want to kind of harp on that, too, because it wasn't just Tesla. It was also Rivian and a few other EV players. And it's like, is it just because Tesla's proving the market or is there something else going on here? And the thing that a lot of people kind of fall into when they're watching the EV space is they think, okay, uh, Tesla is insanely overvalued because like all you're doing is just taking metal and shaping it into a car shape and selling it, right? The issue here is that EVs are fundamentally more expensive to build, but easier to build. Like, you don't have this giant, complicated supply chain. So you can have these insane moments where you just all of a sudden put it all together with your gigafactories or whatever and get back on track and beat these delivery numbers because it's ultimately a lot easier to put a Tesla car together than it is like a GMC Sierra or whatever because it's a much simpler engine. That's why Rivian turned around so much as well. They also beat their delivery numbers, not by as much, by about 3%. Um, but what they managed to do was, in a single quarter, go from them saying, hey, we're not even, we're going to barely beat deliveries last year, like things are slowing down a lot, to now they're going to be able to, they're very confident that at some point, either Q3 or Q4, they're going to have a moment where they have 100% year-over-year growth of deliveries and be able to deliver 50,000 cars this year. It moves on a dime because these vehicles are ultimately very simple to put together once you have the big piles of lithium, copper, and whatever else to put it together, right? So it's very encouraging to see. The thing that really not Tesla off was like, this is one of the biggest delivery beats they've ever had, and it's kind of feeling like their AWS moment. They're seeing these moments where they basically kind of reactivated the entire economy of China after China had all of their lockdowns. A lot of that production is happening in Shanghai at Tesla, and it we there was no one expected that. They thought it was going to be slow for a long time. The fact that they can just single-handedly do this while the rest of the Chinese economy is still struggling to get back on its feet, so to speak, post-COVID is, is wild and a testament to, again, the complete mental shift that comes from the EV supply chain market. So maybe they're going to lose a little bit of market share once Ford finally becomes the main competitor they're going to be, but it's going to take a while. We have more to talk about Ford later, though. So that's what you really have to think about when you're trying to analyze and understand the EV space is that you can have these moments where all of a sudden your supply chains coalesce brilliantly and you can beat deliveries by, you know, double decimal points of percentage, right? So that's what I want you to think about as you sort of analyze this space. The market is very future-focused, and if Tesla has a moment where they decline on deliveries, like if they if it goes both ways, they will go right back down as well. And that's kind of the thing the market is thinking about. Can Tesla keep this acceleration up? Can Rivian keep this acceleration up? I'm a lot more bullish on Rivian right now, especially if they hit that 50K number later this year. But to get more of our long-term perspective once we update our Rivian price target that's coming in the next couple of weeks, again, check out app.mobi.co if you want to see how we're thinking about these markets long-term. But we're also going to be waiting for Tesla's Q2 earnings call two weeks from now before we even begin to think about where they're going to go for the rest of the year. Well, that just, and kind of, that's kind of getting us close to time. Is there anything else you wanted to go into real fast, man? Again, wild week in the market. EVs are wild. Inflation's kind of nutty. Um, we're also excited to see how travel is doing, but maybe we talk about this once we get Delta's numbers next Thursday. But is there anything else you're watching right now that you want to make sure that we kind of cover before we, you know, go ahead and read us out here? Yeah, I feel like this episode, you know, we definitely covered a little bit more granularly the economy and EVs in particular uh, in terms of, and then in relation to how sometimes we go super wide and discuss a lot of topics. So while these are two things we're obviously watching, you know, it seems like the Fed is obviously going to resume rate hikes potentially at the next meeting. You know, these are these are key things for us, but there's still a handful of other things going on that we didn't get to chat about and things that were we've released, you know, through the app and through the site. So Meta coming out with the Twitter rival is super, super exciting, honestly. If you haven't checked it out, I definitely highly recommend it. It's basically a Twitter ripoff, to be fair. 
Um, that's something that we're, we're watching pretty closely to see how that plays out. Obviously, that's more inventory for Meta and then ultimately potentially more dollars in the door. Um, T-Mobile's a, a company, you know, it's been around forever, but it's something that we release as a single stock idea on the app as well as a, a play in the communication space, which has been grossly overlooked for the last few years. Um, we've done some app updates to Amazon and how AI, they're using it to supercharge their cloud. Same thing in Evotech and the healthcare space. So AI is, you know, we've talked about it before, but it's going to be a major theme for this year and the years to come. It's While some of it definitely is overhyped, it's not like crypto and NFTs where it's this pie in the sky idea. I mean, there's real applications and real use cases going on every day. So those are inherently anti-inflationary, which is great. So those are those are things we're looking at as well as just, you know, AI, travel, um, ultimately the Fed, the economy, uh, technology. These are just the the real big themes for us headed into next year. And audience, if you're trying to like parse whether or not AI is already a bubble or not, the way we're thinking about it is, is are, are you simply taking older revenue lines and supercharging them with like promises AI can make? Like what we saw with Meta, they basically made Instagram competitive with TikTok based off of the way the ways their internal AI models improved the Instagram algorithm and got reels to be actually useful compared to what is it called TikTok, which is what we're hoping we're going to see with Threads as well. But we need a lot more numbers. Threads is very exciting because obviously they're at 70 million users in just 48 hours. But we'll kind of give you a more granular thoughts once we have a week with the platform and a week with sort of the market reaction to the platform. It's currently a very bizarre space because it's primarily Instagram users doing stuff like Twitter style, so to speak. So it's a very weird mix of cultures. If you're kind of, if you were around for social media a lot, if you were on Twitter in 2010, if you were on Instagram from day one, like, you know, the, the various tech losers we are here on the Moby analyst team. Um, it's very interesting to see, but again, with Meta not potentially putting ads on the platform for a whole year to try to make it as sticky as possible, the main thing is, is Meta putting too much money into this platform? Like, we really need the year of efficiency to stay. So we're, you know, reserving judgment until we see, uh, I, I guess, basically, we're not going to, we're going to have to wait until October for Q3 earnings since this launched in July, and they can kind of sweep it under the rug for a little bit until we get sort of better updates on on where that where those costs are because that's the main thing did it cost too much money to launch this thing right now that's our main sort of thoughts process here but when you're thinking about ai as well it's again supercharging an actual process amazon is going for a specific company by company services side thing evotech is a service built around ai not just ai itself and next week we're going to be hearing about how adobe is using ai brilliantly more as like a get somebody in the door type situation to help teams be more productive which is their kind of principal issue right now when they're trying to upsell folks into firefly into their creative cloud um, and it's kind of working really well. So that's the thing. AI has to be tangential right now. It cannot be the star of the show unless you're Alphabet in terms of thinking about making an AI service for a broad consumer base. So a lot of complex things we're thinking about on the AI side of things. We're going to be doing it for the next couple of weeks as we fully unpack folks who we see are going to be winners and losers from actually making money in AI, especially once we get into Q2 earnings starting next week. Regardless, audience, I mean, Justin, any final thoughts from you, man? I think it's a pretty solid place to end it, though. Again, it's just like we're just unpacking it all here basically now i like it let's wrap it up
Let's go. All right, audience, thank you so much for listening. Just so you know, this podcast is produced, hosted, and voiced by me, Peter Starr. All of the intellectual value from Moby comes from our analyst team, which is headed up by Justin Kramer, our CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here. If you like us, go ahead and check us out and check us out on threads from Moby.invest over there, as well as Moby.invest on Instagram. That's where you're going to get sort of our day-to-day thoughts. Make sure you're checking out our app, app.moby.co, to get our long-term thinking, as well as our email daily sort of digest that we're putting out a lot lately, too. That's growing like hotcakes as well. Regardless, audience, thank you so much for listening check us out everywhere we really appreciate your time and as always we'd like to leave you with peace love and incremental gains everyone be well thank you so much